This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. Just a few days into 2021, a mob of thousands of people marched into the Capitol building and attempted to stop Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 presidential election. Things quickly turned violent as the mob overtook Capitol Police and found their way into the chambers. If you, like many of us, saw the footage, there were images that will stick in your mind. Images that show in real time the issues we have to address in the country. The Confederate flag being waved on the House floor. The difference in law enforcement's response to the right-wing rioters as opposed to last summer's racial justice protests. The number of law enforcement and military members who participated in the coup against our government. Today, we talk with New Mexico's senior senator, a freshman congressional representative, a local organizer, and a reporter from Vice who studies white supremacy. When you're with your fellow recruits really closely for months on end, it's pretty tough to disguise the fact that, say, you are a member of the Ku Klux Klan, because as we know, there is a huge contingent of people of color in the military, so it's not as if it's an all-white institution. Let's do it. Nomono starts now. On Wednesday, January 6th, at about one in the afternoon, I was getting a haircut, more of a trim. As I was sitting in the barber chair, I got a text message from the spokesperson for Congresswoman Teresa Ledger Fernandez, a brand new Congresswoman just days into her first term representing New Mexico's third district. They were hiding from the rioters and Ledger Fernandez wanted to talk. About two hours later, I got her on the line and asked her about what happened. Hi, this is Khalil Colonna from KUNM. How are you, Congresswoman Fernandez? I am mad but safe. (laughs) Okay, mad but safe. Right now, we are locked into offices in what we believe is a building that has been secured. And we are being asked to stay away from windows. A week later, we talked about her vote to impeach President Trump, gun control, and what happens next. Good to talk with you again. Let me ask you, can you describe the environment in the House chambers today? The House chambers were filled with people who wanted to make sure that the events of last Wednesday were not forgotten and were not ignored. So you had very passionate speeches from the Democrats invoking the importance of protecting our Constitution, describing in detail what it was like, but also recognizing that this moment in history, that we have an obligation to answer it and that we are carrying with us in our duty as elected representatives, that the Constitution has placed upon us both a burden and a responsibility to say, was this an impeachable offense? I was convinced with the arguments that if this is not an impeachable offense, there is never going to be one. How are you feeling? How is your staff feeling? Have you talked to members of your delegation about, you know, this experience that you all been through? Because this is entirely not normal. Exactly. The caucus has been very involved in having conversations and sharing with each other what it felt like and talking about the need to make sure we see that there is trauma that comes out of an event like this. There are many different reasons why our heart breaks with what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it was also our families who were impacted. Some, like my son, who happened to be here and who was impacted Mm -hmm. by what was going on, but also our families back home who were worried sick. One of the speeches on the floor of the house was Representative Torres, and she said, I called my son and said, I am okay, I'm running for my life, I'll call you later. Can you imagine the impact 
on her son from mm-hmm. that kind of call from your mother. I have never, I have never had somebody die trying to protect a group of which I am part of. Hmm. And we have deaths among the Capitol Police. And that is such sadness. Uh, we feel and we feel in, deep in our hearts and our souls. I want to really thank the people of New Mexico because they sent blessings, they sent prayers, they sent worries, and all of that kind of replenished and filled up my own reserves of determination and love. We're talking at 3.06 p.m. Mountain Time on Wednesday the 13th, and the last I was able to check, there were about 10 congressional representatives from the Republican caucus to vote for impeachment. Given this great division that we have, do you feel that this move today to impeach the president will hinder any potential bipartisan efforts to get things done for the people of the United States? Healing and unity began with accountability. Mm -hmm. Today, we held our president accountable for his actions. So now we can move forward and begin the work that my constituents sent me here to do, which is attacking the climate crisis, attacking the pandemic, recovering our economy, putting people back to work and bringing down the cost of health care. That's what I was sent here to do. But I also took an oath of office that said I will protect the Constitution from attackers, domestic or foreign. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was a bipartisan vote. I mean, we had 10 Republicans who gave stirring descriptions of why it was more important to place the country ahead of devotion to a single man. We have this problem of misinformation and disinformation. Some of the purveyors and progenitors of this have been social media companies. Now, they've all pretty much banned President Trump and taken away his platform. But in general, I know toward the end of last year, that's something Congress was looking at, the regulation of social media companies. We have some issues when it comes to the First Amendment rights and free speech. But is that something you're in support of, the regulation of social media to do something about misinformation and disinformation. Yes, I am supportive of that. I think that we have in the past regulated broadcasters so we can regulate in a way that doesn't suppress free speech. We also need to look at antitrust issues with regards to some of these companies. Our rules and our regulations and our laws apply to an old technology. We need to update them so that they also appropriately apply to our current technology. Mm-hmm. And Looking at the symbolism and the imagery of last Wednesday, where we have lawmakers, federal lawmakers, hiding under chairs, ducking under desks, in many ways, as young people had to do through active shooter drills and training. When we face this situation of gun control, particularly in the view of school shootings, Congress has sat on their hands. Having to go through that experience yourselves, do you feel that this will motivate Congress to finally take action in doing something about gun control? I hope so. And let me correct a little bit about what you said there. The House has taken action. And the 116th Congress sent over legislation to the Senate. Mitch McConnell refused to move that legislation to the floor of the Senate, even though the American people overwhelmingly support 
common sense gun safety legislation. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is strong motivation. The House will pass those gun control bills again. We will pass them with the knowledge of what has happened here. And what is happening across the country, we know that there are planned attacks, armed attacks, violent attacks on our capitals throughout the United States, including our capital in Santa Fe. The FBI has given us incredibly scary and sobering briefings on those planned attacks. They're reported in the media. And I understand what you're saying about Mitch McConnell killing the legislation before it had a chance to even reach the floor. That goes to my point. We tend to look at these things as Democrats saying, "Okay, well, we passed it, but the Republicans stopped it. Are you willing to go and talk to your colleagues who are Republican and assure them how important it is that we handle these situations? Because if not, it seems that we'll constantly be on the seesaw. I completely agree that we need to take action. But the only way that action will be taken on the Senate side is if the majority floor leader is willing to put the legislation on the floor. And yes, I will go and be talking to both Republican senators and Democrat senators about the importance of this. The real difference is now we will have with Senator Schumer, somebody who's willing to put that legislation on the floor. This one is an example of where it is very clear where you see what the bottleneck is. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you again for talking with me. Always a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Many people across the country are asking how we got here. The clues were there all the time in plain sight, and we've been following this on Nomono and KUNM's news reporting. Executive producer Marisa DeMarco takes us on a walk down the road to sedition. In 2019, my colleague Hannah Colton and I were in the field at a Trump rally one day in Rio Rancho. And a Proud Boys rally just two days before that. of people in Albuquerque turned up to counter-demonstrate. strapped with guns and carrying American flags affixed to different poles. And it's been noted nationally that those poles are sometimes intended as weapons. Our team has pursued stories about the rise of militias locally, starting before the pandemic. We thought it was important because we could sense something congealing. And just a warning for people listening who, like me, are grieving November's loss of reporter Hannah Colton. I've used some of her work in this piece, so you're about to hear her voice some. And another quick note, we do talk about the mid-June shooting outside the Albuquerque Museum in the audio that follows. From Spring 2020. My next guest is one of America's leading anti-racism activists and scholars. I'd like to welcome Tim Wise to the show. This resistance that 
so many white Americans have manifested to masking and keeping social distance and being seen as possibly, you know, carrying a virus that could kill you. White people seem, many of us seem horribly aggrieved at the suggestion that we could be dangerous. Is that a matter of white privilege? I think it's a matter of white supremacy and the privilege that comes with that, specifically the privilege of not being the one who is under suspicion. From June 1st, men said they were from the New Mexico Civil Guard. That's a militia group that made a showing at an Albuquerque anti-shutdown protest in April. A post on their Facebook page Monday said members will, quote, be protecting local businesses every night this week amid what they called violent protests. In the last week, Albuquerque has seen several peaceful protests calling for an end to police killings of black people. The Albuquerque Police Department radio dispatch indicated officers had seen men with long guns east of UNM. We have a peaceful protest! Go home! Shortly after, a shot rang out near Central and Yale. It was unclear from where. That local militia group didn't like our coverage and threatened to protest at the station on social media. They never showed up, but after waiting for them for hours, we stayed up all night to get a report asking questions about militia coordination with police on the air. Here's part of that story. APD spokesperson Gilbert Gallego said in an email that APD administration has not authorized or condoned coordination with any civilian groups related to the protests. Voices on the APD dispatch radio mentioned heavily armed friendlies, pointing guns down from a rooftop overlooking the march, raising more questions as to whether the department is coordinating with armed civilians. We have worked with APD for many years now. This is Robert Whitman. He's with a group called the New Mexico Patriots, whose mission, he says, is to defend the U.S. Constitution. He said his group was out during last Monday's protest supporting police officers. I see it as they're devoting 99% of their time to the peaceful protest. And now with us being in communication with law enforcement, we can inform. We don't necessarily have to get involved. A week later, in mid-June, Hannah and I were at the protest in front of the Albuquerque Museum. Protesters put a chain around the statue, and one took a pickaxe to the base. A civil guardsman carrying a long gun jumped up to stop him. Some protesters pushed back. Things got chaotic for a few minutes. Everybody, can we just can we just back up and ignore them, please? One man wearing military fatigues repeatedly reached for his handgun. This next part I didn't see directly, but pieced together from videos and eyewitness accounts. As a group of protesters heaved on the chain around the statue's neck, Stephen Baca threw a young woman to the ground from behind her. She hit her head on the sidewalk. He ran off, someone hit him with a skateboard, he sprayed pepper spray in another woman's face, someone else tackled him. Then he fired, wounding a man in the back and near his shoulder. Several militia men then formed a ring around Baca with their backs to him as he sat on the ground using his phone. About three minutes after the shooting, APD, riot police, and SWAT arrived with two armored vehicles. KUNM's Marisa DeMarco was there and is a friend of the victim who is hospitalized in stable condition. Marisa, thanks for being with us. 
Hey, good morning, Kay. We're talking about the police today, of course. Where, where were they when this was taking place? I did not see any police officers present. And then after the shooting, it's like several minutes before they show up. And so my friend is in the street and he's bleeding and I'm calling his name. And he like looked at me and nodded to like let me know mm-hmm. that he heard me. And the shooter's still there too. Like the shooter's still there surrounded by civil guard guys Mm -hmm. um so then the police come and they come as SWAT and riot police and they take the civil guard and the um the shooter Stephen Baca into custody and then the riot police just really start like pushing the protesters out of the street and the whole time I was just wondering like why aren't they telling people like hey we need you to back up so we can get an ambulance through here Mm -hmm. and this is a crime scene now and we'll need to interview you or you know like I really think people would have complied people were really scared as it was it ended up being like a 90 minute or two hour like standoff with protesters Mm -hmm. there's tear gas there's less lethal ammunition, mm-hmm. you know, just on and on and on. Weeks after that, the militia threatened via social media to protest at the home of two UNM professors who are members of the Red Nation. They never showed. But militia members kept showing up at protests, sometimes trying to remain incognito. all got weird in August at a sandwich shop in downtown Albuquerque after hours where a manager was holed up with militia members. I have this on video. At 9 p.m., two loud bangs and two flashes appeared to come from inside the restaurant. We ran, thinking they were gunshots. It's true they could have been blanks or fireworks or something else. Gilbert Gallegos, spokesperson for APD, said via email that both sides reported threats. Regardless, those two loud bangs didn't draw nearby officers to the scene. Reporters waited and watched for more than an hour. And though police officers were stationed all over downtown, we never saw them approach, nor did they stop passers-by from walking up to peer in the restaurant's windows. Still no direct answers from APD's Gallegos about any of that. Gallego said there were no gunshots that night, just fireworks. We heard those fireworks too, a good 30 minutes after I recorded the bangs. Many news outlets did reporting on these groups after the statue shooting, reporting that sparked outrage from people saying the stories felt like advertisements for the militia, with reporters not pushing back when members said that they aren't racist. Journalist Dan Alcorn did some digging about Civil Guard founder Bryce Provence. Some of the documents that stood out to me the most were filings that he made when he was acting as his own lawyer in one criminal case because he referred to himself repeatedly with these different titles. So he called himself Aryan Barbarian. And then he referred to himself as SS Staatenführer. He's giving himself kind of a title in the Nazi paramilitary. This is a product of somebody who really believed this stuff. And he admitted to that when I brought these up. What he said now is that I was brainwashed. 
militia members showed up at an event in Rio Rancho in September held by Black New Mexico movement demonstrators to register people to vote and fill out the census. The militia folks were mixed in with a couple hundred Trump supporters. And it wasn't lost on me that what Hannah and I were looking at that night was a small anti-racism event countered by a Trump rally. Before the speeches were over, some counter-protesters got more verbally combative at the perimeter and then swarmed the protest area. They referenced conspiracy theories about Antifa rioters and accused BLM of being looters, ideas that stood in stark contrast to the small, peaceful rally. After the election results came out in favor of Biden, I rolled up to the roundhouse in Santa Fe. This is uh, good versus evil, okay? I know there's a lot of God-fearing people here. We're good, and they're the bad guys. They're the evil ones trying to do things in the dark. We need, like the media over here, the fake media, to call them out. Supporters waved signs and flags on either side of the street a ways away from the roundhouse steps. Small group of Biden supporters held signs across the street. Put this on record, there's no American flags over there. Not a single one. That speaks volumes. What does it say to you? Biden supporters. It tells us that they're not un-American. Kind of what we're looking at again. It's not a one-off thing. It's not a new thing. And though people are drawing fine lines between who's an insurrectionist, who's a card-carrying member of the militia, who hates BLM and the media, and who's just a fervent Trump supporter, if we pull back, we hear the same words echoing throughout. For No More Normal, I'm Marisa DeMarco. Senator Martin Heinrich happened to be downstairs in the Capitol building and was one of the first lawmakers to see the mob descend. He quickly alerted his colleagues of the impending threat. Exactly one week later, on the same day that President Trump was impeached for the second time, I spoke with New Mexico's senior senator about domestic terrorism and the flagrant racism we're facing. Thank you very much for taking time to do this with us. Really appreciate it again. No, my pleasure. You sit on the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence. For years, there's been a call to place right-wing extremist groups on the terrorism list to officially call them domestic terrorists. Is that designation something you support? Yes, I think these groups are unquestionably terrorist groups. And I think to the extent that we have not taken domestic organizations as seriously as international organizations is an absolute mistake. There are rightful limits to using intelligence agencies to Mm -hmm. surveil American citizens. And I'm a civil libertarian at heart myself. And I think that much of the response for how we deal with domestic terrorism needs to be couched firmly in domestic law enforcement, in the FBI, and Department of Justice. We need to do a good job of making sure we make the right decisions about what belongs where. What about reports that some in the military and law enforcement are sympathizers for these extremist views? If our military and law enforcement personnel are open and supportive of insurrection, what can be done to assure Americans that our elected leaders can handle this situation? Meaning, how can you all root out racists from the military and law enforcement? 
I think it starts by recognizing that this is a problem and that we have people in agencies of incredible power who are sympathetic to these views. You can't have a logical conversation with someone who is fully embracing the kind of conspiracy theories that led to what we saw on 1-6. Mm-hmm. I mean, I flew to and from Washington, D.C., surrounded by people who participated in those activities who fully believe and have internalized some of the most extreme QAnon conspiracy theories. And I think it's going to come down to the leadership of our law enforcement agencies and our military to root this out. I sit on the Armed Services Committee as well, and I I think that it is only becoming now evident how widespread some of this may be. And I think we're going to have to be diligent over the long term to hold accountable anyone who participates in seditious or white supremacy activities. Those people have absolutely no place, no place whatsoever in a law enforcement agency or inside the U.S. military. These activities were a direct affront to our democracy and our constitution, and they should be viewed as such. We're seeing a difference in law enforcement and how they dealt with these capital insurgents as opposed to the racial justice demonstrators in the summer of 2020. What will you do to ensure equitable treatment? And do you have a take on the right mode of response for law enforcement in these situations? There was an incredible lack of leadership in the ranks of Capitol Police leading up to this event. I think we have to ask ourselves very biting and difficult and hard questions about the clear difference in approach between the protests of organizations like Black Lives Matter. And I was on the ground in the middle of D.C. and witnessed those myself. And I witnessed the response to those uh, and what happened on the Capitol ground on January 6th. I will say that the numbers were so overwhelming on January 6th because I don't think anybody in the leadership of those organizations within the sergeant at arms offices for the Senate and the House had taken seriously that an entire mob could be directed at the Capitol. And that was an enormous mistake. And I think there was largely a tactical decision made by Capitol Police to stand down and try to avoid direct confrontation so long as they could protect the lives of the staff and the members and the people who work in that building. The numbers that the Capitol Police had were simply inadequate to be able to maintain the safety and security of the people at the Capitol and do that sort of work at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that led to an incredibly jarring visual for many of us of these rioters simply being able to walk out the doors of the Capitol. Now you're seeing the follow-up, which is people being identified, being charged, and being prosecuted. Can you talk to me about your emotional state and how your staff and some of your other colleagues are feeling? I think it's actually even more challenging for the staff who were not there to see a place where they work, where their friends work, where the people that they look up to work be overrun in this way. For those of us who were in the building, and I certainly saw some people who were really deeply shaken in the moment. But for a lot of us as members, for those hours, you were responding in the moment, trying to do the best you could and make sure that 
everyone got to someplace safe. Mm-hmm. So there was plenty to do. There were phone calls to make. There were older members to make sure didn't get left behind. There were a lot of things that just had to happen quickly mm-hmm. for the Capitol Police to be able to secure the safety of the people in the complex. That was really where the focus was. I have to say, once we were in a secure location as members of the Senate, The conversation turned very quickly to what is the right response? What is the message that we want to send to the world here today? Hmm. You know, there were some in law enforcement who considered, do we go back at all? The members were very adamant on both sides of the aisle that it would be very important that we all return to this building as soon as it was physically safe for Capitol Police and staff to be in that building, that we go back to the floor and we recognize the will of the American voters and we certify the results of that election. Having an experience like this hit so close to home for so many of you, will this enact some sort of change to reduce school shootings and really deal with our Second Amendment problem that we have here currently in the country? I think only time will tell, but I think it's important that people understand what that feels like. And that if you've experienced it yourself, my hope is you should recognize that no student should have to go through that. The situation today with my kids having to do active shooter drills and training versus the way I grew up, when when I never thought twice about that, never ever considered that someone would have a firearm in the school building, much less actually use it on students and staff. I don't think you can go through that and not consider what our students are going through on a regular basis these days. And so I I certainly hope it feeds into a more productive conversation in that vein. Will you be a participant in that conversation? Absolutely. He's Martin Heinrich, senior senator for the great state of New Mexico. Senator Heinrich, again, thank you very much for talking with us. Be safe. You too. And thanks for your time. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. This is No More Normal. I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We've heard from two members of Congress, and we took a little trip down a not very good memory lane. In the next 30 minutes, we talk to a local racial justice organizer and veteran. Up next is my talk with a journalist who covers white supremacist groups for Vice. Stay with us. Have you ever heard of The Base? I hadn't until I was introduced to my next guest's work for Vice. The base is a neo-Nazi paramilitary group that's had nine members arrested by the FBI over the past few years. They had plans to create havoc and are to be taken very seriously. Ben McCoo covers right-wing extremism for Vice and joins the show now to talk about some of the actors in last week's insurrection. 
this isn't on everyone's radar, but tell us about the paramilitary neo-Nazi groups that you're following that are active in this push to overthrow our democracy. I can't believe I just asked that question, but here we are. (laughs) I've actually been following many groups that have been sort of acting to hasten the collapse of society. It's this group called neo-Nazi accelerationists, or at least a group of people who sort of adhere to that political ideology. The idea being that acts of violence or acts of insurrection and terrorism will hasten the collapse of the U.S. government and force it into some sort of standoff with a homegrown insurgency. So when it comes to something like what happened last week on Capitol Hill, this is something that's really well applauded by that, that entire group that believes that this is a marking of more violence to come and more actions that will inevitably bring down the end of the republic. What are some of these plots that they have been working on? So these groups also, they definitely span different political ideologies, but they all have that uniting idea of wanting to essentially take out the U.S. government. So you have your Boogaloo Boys, some of your militias, and you also have neo-Nazi terrorist organizations like Adam Waffen Division or the base. And these groups in particular have been under the surveillance of the FBI for a long time. For the last probably two years, the Bureau has undertaken a very, very aggressive action to take out those groups. And they've, they've stopped them from doing things like plotting to bomb the power grid, mm. shooting up gun rallies, political assassinations, all sorts of really, you know, classically terroristic things that I think most people would associate with groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And when it comes to the violence that happened last week, a lot of those types of groups are just applauding the fact that you have some of this alt-right MAGA crowd that's a little more mainstream than they are who organized this type of plot and this type of day, and it went so, you know, in their eyes, so successfully. Mm. And I think that this is something that's been going on for a really long time. You know, I'm among a group of probably five to 10 journalists who've been covering this space since, you know, 2016, and we've all been saying the same thing. You know, the same thing that I think the FBI and DHS has said is this is a major problem and white supremacists are becoming much more violent, much more sophisticated. And on top of that, their numbers are swelling. And I think that's one thing that is particularly scary for me. And I think this moment that happened last week, it's just radicalized them even further. You talk about the numbers swelling. The military is investigating any members that may have been involved in the insurrection. And, you know, we've heard from a local veteran about racism in the military, but you're also seeing neo-Nazi recruitment for the military online, right? Why is that happening now? It's been happening for a very long time. Hmm. If you remember Timothy McVeigh, who was the terrorist who bombed the Oklahoma City yes. buildings, the Edward P. Murrow buildings, which housed the FBI and a, and a nursery of children. He was a Gulf War veteran and he'd been recruited into sort of this neo-Nazi terroristic space himself. And when it comes to the last, I'd say, four or five years, there's been a, a massive influx of veterans from the, you know, the endless wars we've had in the Middle East and Central Asia. Mm-hmm. There has been a lot of angry, upset men who've come back. And not to say that all of our country's veterans are poised to do terrorism, but there's a small minority that do. And these types of people have military training. They know how to use weapons. They know how to make bombs. They know how to do evasive tactics. I mean, all the things that would make you a good terrorist Mm -hmm. is being a good soldier. So these types of groups have actively tried to recruit those types of people. In fact, many members of those types of organizations are veterans. There's some that have been arrested who are Iraq war veterans. There's some that have been arrested that have fought in Afghanistan, some that have fought in both. A lot of people saw veterans on the 6th Mm -hmm. and many, probably too many were there. And I think people have really taken that to be, you know, a real warning sign. Mm. Now, there are National Guardsmen stationed in the Capitol as we speak. 
Is there cause for concern with the inauguration? Have you been hearing anything about plans to disrupt the ceremony? I've seen a lot of chatter online, and I think there was a statement that was put out by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, the highest Mm -hmm. ranking soldiers in the entire country, that were reminding guardsmen and troops of their oath to the Constitution. And it was clearly done with, you know, fears of allegiances of some of these people that are being deployed, because there is chatter online that some of these guardsmen have neo-Nazi sympathies. And I know neo-Nazi accelerationist groups have said that they want to turn or they've asked guardsmen who are there to turn coat and join their cause. It's tough to say what will happen, but I think DC is becoming so heavily guarded. It's become almost a military stronghold at this point. I do think that there's going to be some hesitance for far-right organizations to show up there and cause violence. I do think that there will be some people mm-hmm. and groups that go there. I think one of the real fears right now, they're saying go to state capitals and go to smaller you know, smaller venues yeah. that aren't necessarily having the same surveillance by the FBI. One thing I think that actually does help with disrupting this kind of behavior inside the military is that when you're with your fellow recruits really closely for for months on end, it's pretty tough to disguise the fact that, say, you are a member of the Ku Klux Klan or you're the you're a member of the Adam Waffen Division of the base, because inevitably some of your racisms are gonna are gonna spill out and it's gonna mm-hmm. raise heads because. As we know, there, there, there's a huge contingent of people of color in the military. So it's not as if, you know, it's an all white institution. Yeah, it's like a racist is going to racist. So exactly. A racist is going to racist. Yet with that, we have so many of this Trump supporters who are fighting the election results saying that they are not racist. But we saw during the coup Confederate flags and white supremacist signals. How should listeners try to make sense of all this? This is sort of the classic argumentation, I think, that you've seen across the last four years. You know, there's been deeply racist acts that have been perpetrated not only by government, by supporters of the president, and simply by saying to the public that, no, we are not racist, having just committed acts of racism, doesn't really excuse the fact that you're a racist. The signs, the imagery that we saw, the things that were said, I mean, there were Capitol Police Department officers who were black who said that they were endlessly called the Mm N-word last week. So uh, there was a lot of racism going on, crowd. And in terms of violence here in the U.S. from these far-right groups, is this only the beginning? I do believe to some extent it is the beginning of it. I don't think this this goes away. I think one of the fears is that it's such an entrenched online community Mm. that has many places to hide. But, you know, these people have, they have a worldview. They have literature that reinforces the way they think. It's not as simple as saying, you know, to them that this is stupid. How dare you? They have a plethora of their own things to read and to watch that reinforces how they think. And that's interesting because since the sixth social media, they cut off the president and a lot more of his prominent sympathizers to prevent them from fomenting any more violence. I got two questions with that. One, will that have any effect on communication within these networks and also does making that move of blocking accounts, does it support this agenda from these philosophies that you speak of with these groups? To some extent, it does support them. But, you know, we, statistically, we know that deplatforming works. So if you take the case of Alex Jones, he actually has lost support since he was deplatformed by all the major apps. Mm-hmm. So deplatforming works. Does it drive people underground and make them more radical? Some people, absolutely. I think it's in many ways too little too late. Hmm. For the terms in which they banned President Trump from Twitter, 
they could have done it four years ago. So I think, you know, the damage has already been done. I think the same goes for Facebook. In some ways, Facebook might have been worse. I think some of the worst of it has been, you know, the QAnon conspiracy groups that have been allowed to completely flourish. Oh, yeah. This is like three chapters in the history books in the future. You know, <laughs> we're both members of the news media with so many lies fueling this uprising. How can we move to a place where we agree on the facts? Because you mentioned these people have their own dogma. They have their philosophy. They have their texts, their films, literature that they go to. And we see the influence of QAnon and other conspiracy theorists, Ali Alexander and Stop the Steal. How do we get folks who are not fully extreme to come to a place where we can all agree on facts? I know that's a tough question to ask. To be honest with you, I think this is maybe the greatest question facing the country. The fact that quite clearly what happened on Capitol Hill was insurrectionist and was certainly supported by the president. I mean, that's it's it goes beyond debate. Mm -hmm. And I think when you see in the impeachment vote, only 10 Republicans going along with uh, the House Democrats, I think it does offer a lot of questions as how reality will be accepted by yeah. people in government in the coming months, in the coming years. I think there's going to be a battle over the GOP. Mm. especially when it comes to select a new presidential candidate to face off against President Biden mm -hmm. in four years. I think that's going to be a real question. The idea that we can't accept fact as a collective right now is maybe the biggest national security threat facing the country. Yeah, I agree, because in the debates for the impeachment that they were holding, you know, you had a lot of GOP congressional representatives say that it was actually Antifa and BLM as the creators of the violence last Wednesday. I saw a lot of footage. The crowd was mostly white. Not all of them were, but it didn't look like a Black Lives Matter. But overwhelmingly. Matter. Yeah, it didn't look like a Black Lives Matter rally to me on this, but they continue to say that, that it's Antifa and BLM and deflecting the very basic facts of an attack. I also think it's quite interesting, the stark contrast between when President Trump wanted to walk over hmm. to a, a church and get a photo up with a Bible. Mm -hmm. In D.C., peaceful demonstrators were tear gassed. If you juxtapose that with what happened last week, again, factually, there's a massive difference. And, you know, I don't exactly want to point out what that difference is, but I think we all know yeah. what it was. Yeah. We all see it. I and mean, the contrast is deafening. You know, the longer the government is so divided over facts, it will make it very difficult to create a cohesive, strong government and strong nation and it will only lead to the decline of the entire country. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I see for the for foreseeable future. We may be in for a rough ride. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking time to speak with us. He's a reporter for Vice, Ben Maku. Thanks again for being with me. Come back on the show in the future. Definitely. Thanks for having me. If you've listened to Nimono last year, you were bound to hear the voice of Barbara Jordan, a resident of Rio Rancho, a mother, a military veteran, and activist. When the events on 1-6 took place, Nimono executive producer Marisa DeMarco told me she wanted to get Barbara's reaction to what she saw as someone who put her life on the line for this country. I was ecstatic because I knew what you're about to find out. It was going to be an amazing conversation. So let me ask you, what are your feelings about what happened at the nation's capital and in other state capitals across the country last Wednesday? Well, I do believe that it was a simultaneous attack. I think it was coordinated and well organized. But for me, it was not surprising to see the tantrum that was displayed at the capitals across the United States. I feel like America showed us America. Hmm. And I think that it may have been a shock to some non-people of color 
But for Black people and people of color, we're used to that. We're used to seeing how white people were being treated versus how Black people were being treated. I mean, we all know that had it been any type of Black Lives Matter protest, things would have gone way different from what we saw displayed on television. But we're aware of that. So for me, it's a call to action to other people who may be shocked at what they saw or uncomfortable with what they saw to now finally jump on board and help us with this fight against inequality. Mm. Now, you called it a tantrum. Why do you call it that? I call it a tantrum because it is a niche against white supremacy. Mm. And they are so hell bent on not giving that up that they literally threw a tantrum. Mm. So it's like you took away my favorite thing. How can I exist without this? I'm going to fight for it. Exactly. Now, you're a military veteran. There are stories that point to other military vets and law enforcement officers being involved in the insurrection. As someone who has put their life on the line for the country and our constitutional rights, how does it feel to see people who took the same or similar oath as you did take part in this insurrection? It's a slap in the face to me as a veteran who has served their country for 20 plus years. But I believe the veterans that was there, whether they were active duty or retired, they need to be investigated. They need to be separated if they're still serving. If they are retired, they need to have their benefits taken away from them because it's a checkpoint for our leadership in service that racism exists in the military. That has often, too, been a thing that has been grazed over or ignored. It's a way up call that they need to take a real hard look at what's going on. There's been a lot of reports from people who study extremist groups who say that law enforcement and the military have been infiltrated by people who have these extremist far right beliefs. Now, have you ever experienced anything like that in your years of service? Yes, I have. I was the senior person in position and had a younger troop and we actually found his notebook and in his study guide, and and you may have to bleep this, but it said... He was making jokes about, you know, things of that nature. I brought it to my leadership. And I want you to know, Khalil, that it was another African-American male who was one stripe above me. And his words exactly were, well, I don't think he meant n***er. I think he meant n***er. You know, Mm. like he was playing. He played it off like it was some kind of joke. I want you to know that instead of disciplining that troop, they sent him to freaking Germany. He got an assignment to Germany. Wow. And there was nothing I could say to my other troops who knew that that was going on. I had to go back and let them know that, okay, we lost that battle. And that was just one instance of many. I've seen little things where I've had to step in with people of color in the military getting that abuse. And then we try to do a case with it, but it never goes anywhere because the further you get up in position of power, the more white people you run into. So the more white people you run into, the more they're shedding it down as if it's nothing to see here, folks. Let's go about our business. Yeah. That position that let's not worry about it, let's sweep it under the rug is untenable at this moment. There's no way you cannot recognize it and also not do anything about it. Let me ask you about this. Many people, including President-elect Biden, have pointed out the disparity in the treatment between the BLM protests of last year and what happened last Wednesday. You mentioned this a little before, but tell me about how you see that stark difference in treatment. Let me tell you, for me, when I was watching it on TV, the names of so many of our Black brothers and sisters, our children, their faces came up for me. Their names came up for me. Tamir Rice, Mm. Philando Castillo, George Floyd. And it was like a dagger in my chest. Mm. 
And it was a confirmation to me that they were murdered without regard for their life because they just don't give a damn. And if people think that we don't have this problem all across the United States and including New Mexico, they're wrong. They're point blank wrong. We have a serious issue here. It is time that people stop trying to turn a blind eye. It's time for people to stop trying to ignore it. And it's time for people to address it. I feel like with Martin Luther King Jr. Day coming up, when our brother said he may not get with us to the mountaintop, I feel like we're there, Khalil. I feel like we're there. Mm. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah. Are we going to cross it? Are we going to do the work? Because now the world has seen the work that needs to be done, not only here in the United States, but worldwide coverage of that tantrum, as I like to call it, was displayed. And now the white America has shown their hand and now we have to do the work. I agree with you, particularly in that sentiment that Dr. King expressed about being on the mountaintop and he getting there with us, because I feel that the words of the Declaration of Independence, we actually have an opportunity just an opportunity to make those words actually ring true after over 200 plus years that they were written. Now, let me ask you, some DAs across the country have said that people who took part in the insurrection will be prosecuted in their home states. How do you feel about that? They need to be prosecuted federally. That's federal land. That's our house. They need to be on no fly list. They Mm. need to brought back to where the crime occurred and they need to be prosecuted because they would do no less for black people. Some say it's a First Amendment issue. Some people say that they were protesting peacefully. Others got involved in breaching the Capitol, storming the Capitol, creating violence and the destruction of property. Do you think the First Amendment comes into play here? And if so, how? The First Amendment comes into play for the peaceful protesters. Yes, I do agree with that. The people who were outside and not actively trying to breach the Capitol were upholding their First Amendment right to protest. But that mass group of people who destroyed all that property, who said all those heinous things, those are the people who need to be prosecuted at a federal level. What does that realization mean to those who maybe didn't really get the point of the BLM protests? The big difference there is that we're literally fighting for our lives. Mm. On the other hand, you have people who are feeling a little uncomfortable because they may have to share a workplace with more minorities. So they throw a tantrum about it. I don't even understand how people try to compare the two. No one has impeded on their civil rights like they have impeded on our rights. We had a fair and just election. It's over now. It's time to move on. No one has impeded on their basic civil rights to live, to breathe, to exist. That is the difference. Mm -hmm. Now, have you had any conversations with people about the events of last Wednesday? What were they like? I have spoken to some of my fellow activists and some of my brothers and sisters that are really close and dear to me. And the sentiment is all the same, that it is just an outrageous act that occurred. And it's something that we're going to just move on. We have no dog in this fight. For everyone so here at Nomono, I'm Khalil Ekelona, and I'm truly happy to say this. So now Thanks it's for time listening. for us to just dig in our heels and continue the work that we've been doing to come about change for black people to attack these social and justice issues that are affecting all people in the United States of America. That's like a vision for the future. So tell me, how do you talk to your son, who's a teenager, about the way the Capitol attackers were treated and this entire situation? We've always had a very open and honest relationship, and he knows it's unfair. He's very well versed in the difference with how black people are treated versus white people and non-people of color, and he gets it. 
Mm-hmm. He came downstairs. He was just like, Mom, look, look at how they're acting. He's like, it's a disgrace. So he already knows. Unfortunately, that's a lesson that we have to teach our Black children early on mm. so that they can have a chance to even make it in this world. And not only do we have to teach that lesson early on, we have to teach it repeatedly. Exactly. Now, you live in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. That's a pretty conservative place. Mm-hmm. Have you spoken to anyone there about what happened? No, I have not. The last meeting I had with Mayor Hull was on December 22nd, where he did say that he was standing up a diversity committee, which I thought was step one. You know, we have to do this work and we have to fight it inch by inch, but I intend to keep fighting it inch by inch. Okay. I hear that. And finally, as someone who has taken it into your own hands to stand up for a cause, what do you have to say to anyone who is upset with these events, who is listening right now? What do you have to say to them about what we must do as citizens? We all have got to get involved. I consistently say this and I'll say it again. We have to stay in the driver's seat of politics now. We do not get to be complacent. We do not get to sit on the sidelines. We need to be attending every virtual town hall meeting they're having. We need to be emailing our newly elected representatives and our senators. And we need to stay on them because they work for us. And now that they've earned their seat, we need to let them know, don't forget who got you there. We, the voters, got them there and we have to demand change. That's what we need to be doing with our energy right now. She's activist, organizer and military veteran Barbara Jordan. Barbara, thank you so much for talking to me again. Thank you. Our democracy is being tested right now. It's not the first time, but it feels like a tipping point and our very lives are in the balance. Can we find truth Will we come to a place of peace? Can we resolve not to look the other way when the view is uncomfortable? Will those who stormed the Capitol, who aided and abetted seditionists, and who proliferated dangerous lies face punishment? Find out with us next week on No More Normal. It's all about consequences. One of the most important legislative sessions we've ever seen in New Mexico is about to commence on Tuesday. Throughout it, we'll be reserving a part of each No More Normal episode to shed some light on what will be happening in the Roundhouse this year. So here's a quick preview of our Your New Mexico Government segment. No More Normal started off a year ago as Your New Mexico Government, where we covered the legislative session. I'm here with one of our partners in crime, one of our production partners, Kevin McDonald of New Mexico PBS, to talk about this year's session. Kevin, how's it going? Good. Happy New Year to you, Khalil. Hope you're doing well. Yes, sir. Happy New Year to you. Okay. So what are we looking at with this legislative session? It's starting on later this month. I'm interested in the state of the state address. What are you thinking we should expect from the governor? Well, right now, we don't really know what to expect at all. One thing we know for sure is that it will not be carried out under normal circumstances. Hmm. We know that the roundhouse will be closed to the public and that there's a whole lot of business to be taken care of by lawmakers right off the bat in setting up rules for this virtual legislative session. But in talking to the governor's office, I know that they don't want to drop the state of the state in the middle of all of that business. And then, of course, the second day of the legislative session, the 20th, is Inauguration Day. So we don't have official dates yet, but we're looking at probably something the following week, the week of January 25th. It'll be pre-recorded, so it'll look a lot like the COVID updates that we get regularly from the governor. Now, 
You mentioned the inauguration day coming up and the FBI just reported that they expect armed protests to happen at state capitals across the country in all 50 states. That includes New Mexico's Roundhouse. Have you spoken to the governor's office or anyone about what their plans are to address and deal with that? No, not specifically about that. I know that all eyes are also really looking at state capitals for this Sunday. That's a date that's been thrown out for protests and rallies and things as well. Obviously, it's an uneasy time for anybody in government and so many wheels turning and things to be figured out that I just can't imagine all that they're trying to deal with tangentially related to that even just got word earlier today that it looks like the media will be allowed into the roundhouse. But now, apparently, that's going to be under strict testing Hmm. guidelines. So there's just so many moving pieces on all fronts. I know that state officials are very aware of these threats, as they are in most states. But no doubt, protests and rallies outside the Capitol are nothing new in a Hmm. legislative session. It's just a matter of how will these exactly look. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that, I mean, we have a COVID-19 pandemic. We're going in. It's going to be a year coming up in a couple months. We have these protests and demonstrations that you just spoke of. Yet the mission that we're trying to do here at your New Mexico government with Normal Normal, New Mexico PBS and the Santa Fe Reporter. Let's talk about that because it's hard. These are hard to attend legislative sessions in general. Now the COVID-19 pandemic has made it even more difficult. How important is it that we get this information, what is happening at the Roundhouse, how we get that out to people? Oh, it's huge, Cleo. I mean, I really would call it unprecedented. And the argument for having a virtual session is that it's difficult for people to travel to Santa Fe under non-COVID situations and to take time off from work to make their voice heard. And, and I understand all that, but we also know that we're one of the least connected states in the nation still. So there are plenty of people that will be locked out of even observing the process, let alone We still don't have answers on how people are going to have their voices heard in public comment. I know that at least on the Democratic side of both the House and the Senate, there's efforts to do virtual office hours with as many lawmakers as possible. So there's an effort there. And we all sympathize with the ongoing pandemic and the need to take care of public health. But there is just no denying that transparency Hmm. is even more lacking than usual. And so us trying to stay on top of this and to do what we also set out to do from the very beginning, which is not just to give access, but to make the information accessible. Mm. Government is a complicated process, so it can be really hard for the person who's not in that world every day to even make heads or tails of what's happening in the roundhouse. And we've got big issues. We've got legalization of marijuana, of course, huge budget issues, redistricting. These are huge issues that all are on our plate this year. Yeah. I mean, it's literally a lot of these decisions and policies that are going to be enacted or debated at the very least come down to life and death decisions that we've seen over this past calendar year. And incredibly important. Let's talk about what your New Mexico government is going to look like. For sure. And we want to also make sure we take a moment to mention our our other partner in this, which is the Santa Fe Reporter. And so always we can be counting on all three of us in the course of our weekly reporting on news to be covering these issues. And then we don't know exactly how this is going to play out. I am hearing that the very good possibility that the entire structure will be changed. They're trying to re-envision this in a COVID-19 world this year. But, you know, we're talking about a lot of things. One of the things we're talking about is even shorter daily 
audio podcasts under the No More Normal umbrella to just give people an idea of, hey, this big thing happened yesterday and these great journalists in our state have covered that. You should go read that. And heads up, this is big hearing is coming up today. So we're going to have to see a little bit how the dust settles and what the process is going to be. Mm-hmm. If COVID-19 in 2020 taught us anything, it was you have to be able to adapt and adapt quickly. And that's what we're doing. He is Kevin McDonald, production manager with New Mexico PBS, who's one of our production partners here at Nomono, along with the Santa Fe reporter. Kevin, thanks for being with me. I look forward to talking with you more about the session. Absolutely. Stay safe, Khalil. As always, we want to thank all of our guests for offering their expertise and insights. Special thanks to Jazztone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, and Olad Records for providing music for the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. The image for this show this week is a photo taken by news photographer and rising star Sharon Shashili. Thank you so much, Sharon. No More Normalist executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's produced and hosted by yours truly. Editing and social media is handled by Taylor Velasquez. And many thanks to Yasmin Khan and Nash Jones for helping to edit the show this week. We dedicate this and every single episode of No More Normal to Hannah Colton. We love and miss you, Hannah. For everyone here at Nomono, I'm Khalil Ekelona, and I'm truly happy to say this. Thanks for listening.